You're listening to the Swim Out podcast, a show about the wonderful world of outdoor swimming. Hello, Hunter. Hello, Omi. Hi, listeners, and welcome to this edition of the Swim Out podcast, where today we're talking about access and diversity in aquatics. I spoke to a bathing historian. Certainly in like the early to mid-19th century, there was a received idea that women might bathe, but they weren't going to swim. I spoke to a friend smashing social barriers to the water following the Grenfell Tower disaster. There's a lot of fear, and if that's handled well, then it's the start of an amazing relationship between child or adult and the water. And a special report on disabled access from Vicky. I was disabled and they didn't think I could do it. It's the the way that people don't believe in your own ability. They don't think you can do things like that. So, in this edition of the Swim Up podcast, I'm joined by guest presenter Omi Dale, who's been working in swimming aquatics for the best part of a decade now. She volunteers for the Black Swimming Association, Pride in Water and Mental Health Swims, who we had on the podcast last uh, last month. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So what have you been getting up to as the autumn has kind of rolled in? Yeah, well, I think I'm very grateful for the autumn at the minute because it's been a really, really busy summer, um, which I'm really grateful for. But there's been, you know, a lot of coaching, a lot of taking people outside in the water for the first time, different groups, um, looking a lot about access to the outdoors, access to water with a variety of organisations and brands, which I've been really lucky to be part of the conversation there. And now I guess as autumn's coming to a close, um, yeah, it's all about winter swimming now, seeing who's going to keep coming with me to the water every week and yeah, just enjoying that really until summer comes back around. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're kind of like as comfortable in the open water as like indoor swimming. And I mean, do you think that we've got bigger challenges ahead of us in bringing like greater diversity to the open water world as, uh, you know, the indoor kind of pool world? Yeah, definitely. I've always been comfortable in the outdoors because I grew up swimming in the outdoors. So for me, I've over the years I have transitioned more to swimming outdoors but it's been a very very natural transition but yeah when I look at the difference between indoor swimming and outdoor swimming there's barriers for both right but there's definitely more for outdoor swimming so if you've never been before you don't know anyone who's gone outdoor swimming before there's so many questions and so many things that need to be answered so you know where to swim when to swim water clarity water quality tides everything like that the cost of equipment you know if you want to wear a wetsuit if you want to wear neoprene it's it's a lot more expensive so yeah there definitely are more barriers and i do think that is reflected actually in the makeup of those that go outdoor swimming Awesome. Well, we've got absolutely tons coming up on the show. Just to kick things off, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I caught up with a very good friend of mine, George Townsend, who happens to be writing a PhD about British bathing culture. I guess I'm a cultural historian, yeah. George and I sat down together outside Parliament Hill Lido to discuss access, inclusion and pad jamming in the 19th century. In some context, there's a lot of kind of historical um, data, as it were, um, but in other situations, there's there's not very much. You know, it doesn't necessarily leave a historical mark if someone goes and swims in a certain place. Obviously, with places like Margate, Ramsgate, Brighton, Bath, 
there is lots of evidence of a really like vibrant and long-standing kind of swimming or, or bathing culture that um, kind of spans social classes to some extent. I mean, Bath in particular was like really a kind of aristocratic haunt until a bit later it then kind of like you know made its way down the kind of social 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 hierarchy but there's there's also kind of evidence of of more working class people for example going to the beach on the coast of uh, Lancashire there were these people known as pad jammers who would like go go on holiday together for like a week or a couple of days or a few days or whatever what, break um, down that word what is a pad I don't jammer? know what a pad jammer it, I'm not sure if it's pajama. pronounced pajama or pad I think it's spelt pad jammer and yeah they were kind of working class holiday makers in the early 19th century and possibly before and you know often before these certain places on you know up, up north kind of became fashion more fashionable among middle class kind of swimmers so uh, yeah, long story short, there definitely is a massive explosion of kind of interest in cold water bathing and coastal coastal bathing in the 18th and then on into the 19th century. But then I suppose it's really in the 19th century that swimming as a kind of spectacle and a competitive phenomenon kind of really takes on. What were the barriers to accessing the water? We talked a little bit about, well, class in a way not being a barrier, but what about kind of gender, mm-hmm. race... Mm. disability I mean mm, were mm. certain sections of society really blocked off I mean geographically I suppose even certainly like the early to mid 19th century there was a kind of received idea that women might bathe but they weren't going to swim you know they would they would be wearing these big kind of floundering very modest kind of bathing costumes that just weren't really compatible with athletic swimming and it was you know, sometimes you get people comparing Britain to its continental neighbours. For example, in Paris, there was a, a women's um, swimming school, which was basically a barge slash pool on the on the River Seine, where where it was totally normal for women to swim. And this was seen as an idiosyncrasy of the British that that women just bathe; they didn't swim. But this kind of stereotype was was broken later on, primarily by the kind of rise of these like families of swimming professors you know there'd be like a father of the family who like established himself as a swimming teacher and then maybe he'd have a daughter or a couple of daughters like the back the back with a kind of the classic example of this in terms of gender stuff i think a really interesting moment is the kind of shift between the 1900s and 1910s between that point and kind of the 1930s particularly in, in connection to women using these spaces so it's kind of really in the 1930s that you get mixed mixed gender swimming and on some level this is like a kind of a progressive move right you know like men and women are like have equal access to these spaces women aren't having to like wait for like a special time where where it's like ladies swimming time but i mean one thing i find kind of interesting is that you like if you kind of compare images of women swimmers from the 1910s to those women swimmers of, of the kind of 1930s you get this this shift from a quite a kind of butch utilitarian kind of aesthetic of the costumes of the way that women stand you often get the you sometimes you know get these pictures of like competition swimmers like two women like holding a third woman up on their shoulders and they're like visibly kind of muscular and emulating masculinity i suppose and there is you know on some level a kind of queerness to that i suppose and then 
with the with the rise of mixed swimming there's much more of an emphasis on the femininity of women and or you know some idealized image of the femininity of women and uh, you know you get the rise of things like bathing beauty competitions which are yeah kind of beauty competitions yeah women are much more seen as an object rather than like you know the sort of subjects of of swimming history and and what about race i mean in Mm -hmm. these sort of swimming places i mean yeah there is um there's an interesting example of a indigenous north american guy coming over and swimming against british swimmers and him basically swimming front crawl before front crawl was kind of a thing in the uk and it being seen as this quote savage stroke you know there was definitely racism about the way that he was received it would be a really interesting avenue for research people have been doing writing similar histories in relation to america like there's that kevin dawson guy who wrote undercurrents of power which is this amazing book about transmission of west african aquatic cultures particularly swimming and canoeing to the americas through the slave trade and also touches a bit later on on how black people were excluded from swimming spaces later on as beaches became more kind of desirable middle class kind of destinations feeding into this like totally like racist stereotype about black people not swimming which to some extent still holds today After I spoke with George, we looked up the race that he mentioned and found out it wasn't just one swimmer, but two that came to London from North America to compete using the front crawl. Their names were Winishka Webe and Sam, who were both part of the Ojibwe tribe in Canada. Next up, I would love to introduce my colleague and dear friend, Sarunia. Sarunia swam competitively as a child and teenager and has been a swimming instructor for over 15 years, working for a variety of leisure and private companies. In 2019, herself and former swimmate Tammy set up Swim Unity, a community interest company that provides free swimming lessons for children and women in North Kensington, where they both live. Welcome to Swim Out, Sarunia. Hi. Um, yeah, first of all, I guess, just tell us a bit about yourself, your background with swimming, how you started to swim and your journey through that, really. I started swimming at about, I think, five or six years old at Kensington Leisure Centre. My mum could never swim, so she took me and my brother to learn to swim at the local leisure centre. And as soon as we got to a point where we just absolutely loved it, they recommended joining a swimming club. At that point, I was about eight or nine, started swimming about four times a week. Yeah, got put forward for kind of competition and nationals at about 10. And I actually swam with the co-founder of Swimmunity at that swimming club. Yeah, so in 2019, it was, right, that you and Tammy, someone that you used to swim with actually, competitively, you set up Swimmunity which, as I've said before, it's a CIC, so a community interest company that provides free swimming lessons for children and women in North Kensington, where you live and where you were born. So, yeah, just tell us a bit about that and what made you set it up. I was working for a number of like private companies and swimming clubs, teaching swimming, and although I loved it, I felt that it didn't go to children who needed it the most. And I'd always wanted to teach small class groups, 
And in 2017, I was pregnant with my daughters and the Grenfell Tower fire happened. So the Grenfell Tower is a tower block in North Kensington. And in 2017, one flat set fire. And as a result of that, 72 people died. I was there on the night of the fire. I was quite heavily pregnant with my twin daughters and I watched the fire from the bottom of the tower. I was awake because it was a really, really hot night. And my friend texted me and said, there's a fire in the flat. And I said, oh my gosh, I can smell burning like in the house. And he said, you need to come downstairs now. It's quite a big fire. So I said, okay, fine. I wasn't sleeping anyway because it was so hot. Um, went downstairs and at that point, the fire had spread all around the side of the building and it just continued to spread and it was it was it was terrifying it was quite horrific so after the Grenfell Tower fire I then was looking locally at pool space and got offered some pool space um you know local to where I live and this fund came about the Grenfell Projects Fund um in the wake of the fire it was put out to local residents to use their skills and expertise to help with healing in the community post Grenfell. At that time, I was like, right, I've got the venue. I've been, you know, told I've got pool space. Now um, I'm going to partner with someone local who happened to be someone from the local swimming club that I met as a child, Tammy. And then we pitched and we applied for this funding, you know, because I really wanted the swimming lessons to be free because a lot of members of the community can't afford swimming lessons. And we were successful in getting the funding, um, which was brilliant. As soon as we did the pilot, the demand was so high and the feedback from the parents was really, really good. Yeah, and I think what makes community so special is what you do for the community. Um, it's very clear, you know, being part of Swim Unity and seeing how you foster those community links. And yeah, you really celebrate community and you celebrate joy, different pieces of joy, whether that's joy of swimming lessons, joy of a child floating on their back, celebrating with parents, but also the way actually, you know, we do family beach days, we get children, we get their families out of London. So maybe actually just talk a bit more about the beach days and why you think they're so important and not just focusing on swimming lessons itself? Where we're located is um, in the inner city. So a lot of families are on low incomes and we're also surrounded by concrete. Obviously, as a result of the Grenfell Tower fire, you know, a lot of children experience mental health problems, post-traumatic stress. So along with the economic cost of accessing nature and the mental health benefits of nature itself um we wanted to offer that to the local community um as an extension of of swimming of the water of of you know the joy of swimming basically and the benefits are huge you know seeing the joy on on the children's faces and also it's a chance for them to take what they've learned in the swimming pool and put that into a natural environment, which is very, very different, but so valuable. 
so to provide kind of that guidance for families um, and and young people is is really great yeah it is um i really do enjoy those beach days so i guess one thing to talk about is the barriers i know you've spoken about cost being a barrier but what do you think personally are the biggest barriers that are preventing so many children from learning to swim and how do you think we can break those down from us a swim teaching or you know business perspective is probably access to resources often what happens is the swimming lessons are oversubscribed so there's huge waiting lists if there is access to the swimming lessons they often have rotating door of swimming teachers which then means that the quality of the swimming lessons is quite low also it kind of I think it puts parents and families off quite quickly well, I guess, you know, we're talking about getting the children outdoors and stuff like that. And I know, well, I know because I've been the one going with you that you've recently started open water swimming. So, yeah, why don't you just like say, you know, why you started, how that feels, if you're planning to go through winter, because, you know, you've been swimming your whole life pretty much. And this is your first, this will be your first season, really, swimming, swimming outdoors, swimming in the winter. So, you know, very comfortable in chlorine. It's indoors, it's warm, you know, the chemicals smell the same, the environment's the same, it's the same people, it's, I'm happy. However, if you take me outdoors into the cold, I am totally out of my comfort zone. But it's something I wanted to do for ages. So now we're planning to do every Friday morning, right, Omi? Yeah, every Friday morning party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So every Friday morning, we're going to go to the Parliament Hill Lido, um, which is not like in a lake, <laughs> but one step at a time. It's in a swimming pool still, but it's outdoors. And it's not heated. It's freezing. <laughs> it's literally like not even October and it's freezing. So, you know, let's see. But hopefully I'm going to train myself up to, to work towards like December vibes. Vicky has been busy this month swimming in the Outer Hebrides and also the River Avon in Somerset. In between swimming around the UK, she had time to make this little report on disability and open water swimming. She began by catching up with two swimmers at her local swim spot. So I'm here at the West Reservoir with Carol and Gary, who are swimmers who I often see when I'm swimming at London Fields Lido or the West Reservoir. Both of you are wheelchair users and you belong to the London Wheelchair Triathlon Club. So Gary, we were just swimming together, weren't we? How was your swim? I hear you did like 5K. Yeah, 5K. It was a little bit chilly for me today, even though I've got a wetsuit on. I'm a bit of a coward. I don't generate any heat from chest downwards because I've got very little core and leg movement, none at all. So all the heat is up the top. So I'm not generating anything from there downwards. So I'll get cold pretty quickly. Uh, and did you get any bother from the seagulls? Because there's a lot of seagulls around today. No, not at all. No, I just got rained on today, that's all. Um, very few people in the water today, so I didn't crash into anybody. So Carol is here too. So Carol, can you tell me a bit about the challenges of getting access to venues as a wheelchair user? Well, I think those challenges vary from person to person. Uh, for me, to, I need access to get into the water. So uh, something like a jetty is the easiest thing. So I can, I can get off my wheelchair, I bring a small stool with me, get onto that, then onto the, the jetty and then drop into the water. And I can do the opposite to get out. 
um, but I know others who are fine with a small ladder or, or can bottom shuffle across the sand from their wheelchair to get into the sea or the lake. So it, it does vary from person to person. So there are physical challenges for sure um, getting into water, but are there also mental challenges to overcome? A mental challenge with me, I don't know why, but when I'm indoor pool at the aquatic centre, I can be sitting on the side for about five, ten minutes before I can get into the water. I just look, I just, there's, there's a sort of a mental block for me getting in the water. But when I come out open water, no problem, I just go in and swim. But it's indoors, I don't understand why. Uh, for me, uh, I think the mental challenge is, is about protecting my space. So um, indoor swimming is much more stressful because you're uh, trapped with other people in a lane and they often swim into me and that can cause a lot of pain. So I find open, open water swimming is much safer because there's more space. Um, so I find I'm much less anxious about that. However, I do feel anxious about getting changed sometimes when there's no changing room you're getting changed in front of other people and you know it's hard to get a wetsuit on and off. Thanks to Carol and Gary for sharing their thoughts about the challenges of open water swimming for them as wheelchair users. Next I spoke to Susie Rogers MBE who is a former professional athlete competing at two Paralympic Games. She won a total of 30 international medals including 17 golds and became Paralympic champion in the 50 metres butterfly at Rio in 2016. Susie works as a disability advocate, advisor and ambassador. She's recently taken up open water swimming, so down the line I asked her why. So when you retire from sport, you're always looking for alternatives to have a break from the sport that you did sort of 24-7 for your entire career. Um, but I'm a bit restricted with other sports that I can do. You know, I can't go running and I, I can cycle, but um, I just really love swimming. So the, the alternative to being in a pool is being in open water. And I absolutely love anything to do with oceans and being in the sea. So I guess that's, that's really what drew me to do more kind of open water swimming. And are you finding it rewarding? Uh, yeah, I, I, I really like it. I mean, I think that element of nature and being in nature is so good for, you know, for your mental health, but also just I really enjoy meeting the other open water swimmers. You know, there's a real sense of community in open water swimming. Um, so you advise international development charities on inclusion. Um, would you say that attitudes are changing towards disabled swimmers? Yes, yeah, so I work at the moment on secondment from a charity called Sight Savers to the UK government, uh, to the Foreign Office, Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. So I suppose I have quite a deep level of knowledge beyond my own lived experience of what it's, you know, what the issues are out there around international disability rights. Um, I would say still a long way to go. You know, we're, the focus for me is inclusive health. Um, and there's a lot that we've learned from COVID about how health systems just really aren't inclusive of many people. And there's so many barriers to access those that, you know, health facilities generally and especially in, you know, in lots of countries around the world. So whilst I would say that in a lot of higher income countries like our own, that there's a lot of progress, I'd say there's also the flip side of it is that there's a long way to go in many other places. So what can we do maybe in this country to in improve inclusion in swimming? 
I'd say it's pretty good in this country. I mean, we've got like amazing pathways for athletes with disabilities. The only thing is my my worry is about facility access after COVID because obviously a lot of places shut down or temporarily closed. And my concern is that, you know, for, for example, a facility I trained in in South London is Crystal Palace. And I don't even know if that's reopened. So for, for me, it's about the facilities. It's not about the opportunity. It's about people being able to continue to swim through going to their local pool. And if you can't do that, then I guess it undoes all of the progress that was made in previous years. What do you think makes it easier for disabled swimmers at a facility? I think access. So sort of, you know, not just in the actual facility itself, but, you know, the journey to get there. So what transportation links there are, um, you know, how how the signage is, you know, is the signage accessible? I think there's a lot of factors to consider. And also, even when you get to the facility, you know, are the changing rooms accessible, accessible, the, the toilet facilities, um, you know, are the, what are the attitudes of the staff members? I mean, there's so many factors that are involved with access that go beyond just, you know, lifts or elevator access. So I guess that you've got to consider all of those different elements, really, and think about different impairment types. Indeed. What's your favourite open water swim spot? I've done a lot of swimming in the last 18 months in off the coast of Norfolk. I really like like it around there. The only problem is the tides. You've got to get the timing of the tides right. Otherwise, once I got stranded in a car and the other time I went and the, the water was like two miles out to even get to it and it was all just ankle deep. Um, but I really like the Kent coast as well, Whitstable, anything in the sea. I'm not so much of a river lake swimmer. I'm more of a you know sea swimmer. And have you, I wondered if you had um, entered any open water swim races yet? Uh, I did do a mile, the Henley mile. Was it the Henley mile? Yeah, I did that a couple of years ago. Um, but I was terrified because everyone was really aggressive at the start line. So I was like, next time I do that, I'm going to go right at the back. It's just about taking part and enjoying it now. Thanks, Susie, for taking the time to share your knowledge. For our final perspective, I spoke to Rosalinda Hardiman, a wheelchair user with an impressive open water history. She swam at two Paralympics and took eight world records in her category. She swam Loch Ness, Windermere and the English Channel. Her first channel attempt in 2008 took more than 25 hours and she didn't make it, but she made it the following year and gathered a bunch of awards from the organising bodies. I started by asking her what got her started in open water swimming. We didn't live near the sea when we were children, but we did have occasional family holidays. And um, I can remember swimming off the Welsh coast. I suppose I'd be probably 12 at that time and really enjoying it. An example of how I liked the open water uh, was that I can remember one really stormy, wet day. The family was sheltering in the car. I was swimming and refused to come out. Oh. So that was, uh, I suppose, uh, something. I moved to Portsmouth in 1980 to take up my post at the museum service. And for the first time, I was living near the sea and thought, oh, what a wonderful resource. So started doing a little bit of just ordinary, my own swimming there. Became aware there was um, a group called the Solent Swimming Group who did um, swims across the Solent. And I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. But one of the the problems um, that I encountered... There are kind of stages. You do things like the peer-to-peer, 
then the, the Solent Championship, which is a little bit longer, about three and a half miles, before you go to do across Solent. Even to do the peer-to-peer, which is only about a mile and three quarters, uh, all you've got to do is to sign a form, say you can swim a mile in, in open water. Uh, that's for other people. I had to do a water test simply because they said I was disabled and they didn't think I could do it. Now, it was as if they were doubting my word. And that's something that disabled people often do face. It's the the way that people don't believe in your own ability. They don't think you can do things like that. So I did the water test. I then did um, a single Solent crossing, then a double Solent crossing. And at that point, I started doing more pool swimming and went down the pool route for quite a long time because it's not really easy to um, combine pool and open water, at least not competitive pool. It's very, very different um, technique. So uh, I sort of put open water on hold, and it was only after quite a while doing pool swimming, competing at the Paralympic Games, World and European Championships, that um, I suppose it would be 2001, I thought... I'm competing against people who are young enough to be my grandchildren, let alone my children. And also, I won't say I was beginning to slow, because in 2001 I took my last world record, but I thought, perhaps it's time to do do something else. So I turned to open water swimming, did a few um, old things like the Weymouth three kilometres, the Brighton peer-to-peer. What can I do? And have you seen attitudes um, change over the years, do you think, to your... Um, somewhat. Uh, I had difficulty um, in the run-up to the Atlanta Paralympic Games because I was training with the local um, dis- disability swimming club and also with the ports of triathletes, but I needed specific competition training and I couldn't get that. Three local able-bodied clubs refused to let me join even though I was in the British disability swimming team. One politely said, oh, we don't think you'd fit in. And another actually said, we don't want Crips in our club. Now, those kind of attitudes would not be acceptable now. Can you tell me a little bit about your longest swim? Oh, longest. I suppose it would have been the unsuccessful channel attempt, which was just over 25 hours. And I was pulled out 0.7 of a mile off the French coast. Heartbreaking. I was virtually unconscious. Um, So I wonder what advice you would give to a newer open water swimmer with a disability. I I think there's always the need to be aware that as a disabled swimmer, you need to plan more than other people. You need to really think about what you're getting into. I'm I'm a very independent person. I don't have a partner, whether swimming or um, in private life. So I have to do it all myself. When I go to the Dover Channel Training Group, I do have to accept help with getting the wheelchair down and then back up the slipway, because obviously you can't leave it on the slipway. But uh, for many people, you need to think about what help you're going to need and whether you'll need to have people with you. And also just what the facilities are. Dover for me is wonderful because it has a slipway. Uh, Where I live in Portsmouth, the beaches do not have a wheelchair-accessible slipway, so I have to go on my bum over the stones. Just a sort of a silly, simple thing, going down the slipway at Dover, if if the tide's out, it's very slippery with the weed, so you just go down. But, of course, on the way back, 
if the tide is out. I I can't claw my way up because I go up on my, my rear end till I get to the chair, which is just, just above the weed bit. So I've had to make gloves to try and grip the seaweed. And I've used, um, oh, they're just ordinary facial exfoliating gloves that I've sewn pan scourers to the bottom of. Because that just gives a little bit of grip on the slipway. But it's it's thinking about things like that. What a great use of exfoliating gloves, Ros. So popping back to the West Reservoir, I asked Carol and Gary, what are the main benefits for them of swimming outdoors? Gosh, um, it's just a, and a wonderful feeling you get. Uh, you're immersed in nature and um, I find it very meditative as well. And it's a wonderful feeling afterwards, getting very cold and then warming up again. Yes. Yeah, we've uh, gone down from four limbs to two limbs, so we've got to be careful with the other two limbs that we've left with. So it gives you a lot of freedom too. We don't feel disabled in the water. Thanks so much, Vicky, for that report on disability in the open water. Well, Omi, I guess that basically wraps up the show. Um, but anyway, I hear that you're going to be in a Finister ad campaign this Christmas. So I guess that's something to look out for. Yeah, it's been um, yeah, a fun one. So yeah, it was a loved one campaign. So a lot of swimming in the sea having a campfire on the beach so yeah it should be out quite soon damn good okay well our next episode is going to be the last of the series so keep tuned it's going to be called the big one plenty to look forward to but yeah anyway thanks so much for joining us thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed it